Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Put your pants back on edition. It's Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. On today's show, Men is the latest feature film from writer-director Alex Garland. He of Ex Machina and Annihilation. It stars Jesse Buckley as a widow retreating to a large, empty country estate in rural England. Folk horror ensues. This is a curious document I cannot wait to discuss. And then the Canadian comedy troupe Kids in the Hall returns with a new season of sketches. It's on Amazon Prime. We discuss that and a career that stretches back to the 1980s. And finally, 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 Jody Rosen has produced his book on the history and mystery of the bicycle, Two Wheels Good. We will discuss it with him. But joining me first today is uh, Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, greetings. All right, uh, digging in then. Harper is a young widow. Uh, she's leased an old country estate in rural England for, feels like the weekend, maybe the week, in no small part to continue processing the grisly suicide of her husband, who we meet in tormented flashbacks. He not only took his own life, he tried to take hers with him in a way by blaming her preemptively for what he was about to do. Harper only wants to be alone with her pain, but she discovers that the house, the grounds, and indeed the possibly the entire area are haunted by, well, that is the very dark twist at the heart of this movie. It involves uh, her co-star, Rory Kinnear. Okay, in the clip you're about to hear, the main character, Harper, calls the English equivalent, the UK equivalent of 911, because a man is trying to break into the house where she's staying. We don't get a lot of dialogue here, but you'll hear, at least, at the very least, the chilling sound design of the film. Let's listen. Explain what's happening, please. Oh, Dana. I mean, I, I watched this movie. I mean, I there's so much to just unpack here. But one thing I'll say is just at the primal level, I'm a Frady cat. I was alone in a movie theater and a multiplex in the middle of nowhere with my hands over my face for most of it. I mean, it is a dread, dread-filled uh, exercise. What did you make of it? I mean, I think I have a tougher skin for horror movies than you or Julia do, which <laughs> is not to art. say it's all that tough. Exactly. You know, I, I get very easily creeped out by things. But this movie, for me, after the first hour or so was over, which I agree is, is sets a, a really dread-filled mood and had me excited for the rest of the movie, I think completely falls apart and becomes not only not scary, but not smart, not not following <laughs> through on its ideas. The, the last half hour, which I guess we won't talk about until our, our spoiler-filled bonus segment, 
was to me a complete disaster. And it, to me, it was a real it was a real disappointment because I sort of find that this director, Alex Garland, who started off as a, as a screenwriter and novelist and has now directed three movies, including this one, all of which I think we've talked about on the show. His movies have been Ex Machina, Annihilation and, and now Men have to me given diminishing returns each time. I mean, Ex Machina felt like here's the debut of an exciting new director who's full of interesting ideas about technology and femininity and gender. And I'm not quite sure I totally get where he's going with this movie, but, you know, fascinating watch. Then Annihilation came along and I felt like the stakes were up, right, in terms of what you expect from the second time around from a director. He took on a more ambitious project, interestingly, with this, you know, idea of this team of women who go into this strange, shimmering, I don't know, futuristic space where different rules of, of organic uh, reproduction apply. And um, and that movie also, to me, fell apart at the end and never really carried through on all the, the great ideas that it floated. And that same dynamic where an interesting mood is established and a sort of beautiful world is created and then it all just kind of goes blomp at the end was just really, <laughs> really notable in this movie. And the blomp was very loud and, and unappealing. Okay, Julia, well, we this is a mini spoiler, but I think anyone who's read any reviews, and it seems to be even in the trailer, would know this. So this movie is basically a two-hander that's also an ensemble piece with this twist. Rory Kinnear, the actor, plays the ensemble. He effectively is every male presence in in and around this country house. He plays a cop. He plays a stalker. He plays a young, seemingly very messed up kid, violent, messed up kid. He plays a vicar. Um, he just sort of, he is the men of the title of the movie in some sense. Uh, was that uh, like teasingly weird and vaguely nauseating or overly didactic and somewhat um, distracting? I mean, I would just say that I stand with Dana's blomp at the end analysis of <laughs> this film. Um, and it's a disappointing blomp because... The conceits here are very interesting. And I did, as as the scarediest of the scaredy cats on this show, I really didn't like seeing this film. I was alone in the theater as well. And I like, at one point, kind of like stood up and stood in the back of the theater just to distance myself from the viewing experience because I did <laughs> not want to get sucked into the world. So it, it was effective as a like mood setter at the beginning. Um, mm. My main feeling about this was actually... Like the Beatles documentary where you hear, you know, obviously you get to watch um, Paul McCartney invent Get Back, but you also hear them like noodle all these other things that like could have been hit songs, but aren't. Um, and, and of course, you don't have the the earworm, but the notion of this director essentially arguing that the fact of being a woman in the world is to be the damsel in a horror movie because every man you encounter is actually like the same base instinct and obsessive desire and inability to see you as anything other than the mother and the fucky. Um, that's like an interesting provocative idea. I actually felt like maybe it was part of why I was finding the movie so unnerving um, is like, you know, the concept is just being a woman. That's the horror movie, right? And that's so interesting and really provocative and a provocative movie to make right now. Um, and, and the performance and the sort of sameness and differentness of all of these characters 
that Rory Kinnear plays really marvelously, each of which is sort of an avatar of like a different kind of gross masculinity. Um, but I think actually it's also where the movie starts to lose its edge and where the Jesse Buckley character Harper at the center of it. And again, she's like one of my favorite actresses working today. She does a, she does a good job with this performance, even though it's quite thinly written and often seems to consist largely of like a man saying something appalling to her and her going, what? Like she just says what all the time in the movie, but it like kind of works as character development. Um, But anyway, her like, she doesn't seem to register that it's the same fucking guy. And so then you start to think she's like a little dim or like she, like he's obviously the same guy from the beginning. And so there's something about the way that that, that she processes that turn that creates a little bit of unreality in her situation. I don't know. I, I Blomperino, like this could have been so good and it was not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sort of with you on that. Um, Julia, you raised this interesting question is, is, is like, to what extent are we seeing a slightly forced artsy, overly self-consciously cinematic touch by the director in making Kinnear all of the men? And to what extent are we inside her subjectivity? I mean, the action of the movie in some chronological sense begins with her husband played by the actor uh, Papa Asedu is, is, is depicted as like just an incredibly emotionally needy weakling. I mean, he does among the weakest, most manipulative things a human being can do, which is threaten to kill himself because he's not getting what he needs from his wife who now wants to leave him. And, and he, in the midst of that conflict, um, hits her. And so there's a primal act of domestic violence that initiates in some sense, the entire action of, of the movie. I mean, it's the moment she definitively kicks him out. He very soon kills himself. Well, and it's interesting too, the movie kind of leaves it ambivalent. She's not sure whether he jumped or fell or what. Whatever happened, it came from a deeply suicidal impulse, but it's left it's left vague. And so are you sort of I couldn't decide. Am I seeing am I like am I seeing an allegory or a kind of strained metaphor on the part of the director? Am I seeing inside her consciousness, but it's being made concrete in a way that we're not supposed to take as her subjectivity exactly? I, it just was it was it was like both overthought and underbaked at the same time, which is, I think, the trap his his stuff gets into uh, very often. And then I think there's another issue. I'd be very curious to hear the panel discuss it. Dana, you know, I kept thinking, oh, well, this is like Jordan Peele and Get Out um, only using gender. Well, the obvious difference being Jordan Peele grew up as a black man in America. And so his parable about racism bites all the way down to the bone and beyond. This is a movie written and directed by... A man, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I felt about that as a feminist gesture. It seemed like it seemed like it was committing the very sin it was attempting to taxonomize. I think this movie is actually about men. Like it, mm. it, it, it pretends to be about the experience of women uh, who are subject to the whims and grossness of men, but it's actually about the like tragedy of being a man. And being yeah. like trapped in all of these shitty forms that you can't get out of. And so it's fundamentally not that interested in her and her experience, I yeah. felt. Brilliant. And there's also, I think, in the way that the movie deploys sort of folklore and myth, 
the suggestion that like men are essentially fucked and it's ever been thus and there's no way around it. And I think there's something, I think the movie becomes much less scary in its final chunk, which we will discuss in the plus segment in part, because what it does in the final chunk is make men ridiculous um, in the face of women's power. And, um, and, I actually think that's kind of sexist. Like it, it, it to, to both men and women. Like the, I, I left with like a very bad taste in my mouth because, yeah, like I, I, I did find myself feeling as I watched this, like I wish I had seen this movie made by a woman. The film it actually reminded me of, and this is maybe gonna um, send up a flare in Dana's direction, is Promising Young Woman, which is another film that takes like the condition of womanhood as, um sort of the occasion for like a thriller or suspense or horror. Uh, and, and I know does that in ways that, that Dana really did not like or respect, but I'm curious to hear if this movie twanged any of the same chords for you, Dana. I mean, in the sense that, you know, they both take on gender politics in such a clumsy way that as you point out, they almost seem to be making the opposite point. They seem to be making points that are gender essentialist in ways that I don't think were intended by the filmmaker. I mean, the gender politics of Promising Young Woman are just, to me, just straight up deplorable. Like, if you really follow the logic of that movie to the end, mm-hmm. what that movie bites off and doesn't chew well is even more extreme than in the case of this movie. But I completely think that this movie goes off the rails at the end and forgets what it's even about and becomes this sort of... um would-be gross-out fest that wants to leave you, I don't know, that, that, that just wants to shock the audience into having some sort of feelings about gender that the movie itself doesn't seem to have thought through. I even saw one critic uh, in Vanity Fair, Richard Lawson, saying that he felt like almost unintentionally this movie played into the hands of and almost made the argument for sort of gender critical types, you know, um, the sort of transphobic discourse of the, mm. the J.K. Rowling right. crowd. I'm not exactly, I wish we had Richard on the show to elaborate on exactly how he sees that happening at the end. I don't think that the movie thinks anything through clearly enough to be trying to do that or anything else. But Julia, I agree with you that what it's trying to say about men with a capital M, the title of the movie, and women with a capital W through these particular not very well-drawn characters winds up seeming to inscribe gender stereotypes and gender violence more than it does trying yeah, to overturn I, them. I, and I, and it makes no room for people who might occupy a different place on the gender spectrum than bad Rory Kinnear and endangered Jesse Buckley. It just is so overbroad. Like, the problems with men and women are so much more subtle mm. than the ones in this movie. And I get it's a horror movie and it's not supposed to be subtle, but it's such a potent topic and it's such a clumsy effort and it just it feel really feels like a drag. Right, and it's and a I, lot of filmmaking talent put to put to waste in a way, you know, because I do think that Alex Garland is a great visual stylist and you know, Steve was saying the the sound design in the movie is really cool. It creates an incredible mood and that first hour of that folk horror-esque, you know, period where she's retreating to this English mansion and creepy things are starting to happen is sort of like the beginning of a really good horror movie. One thing I'll quickly say is that I just like I totally agree with both of you. There's kind of a gender horseshoe politics here where left and right are coming together, right? The supposedly radical critique gets so radical, it becomes essentialist about gender identities in the way that reactionaries love <laughs> to take advantage of. Uh, it's an idea that they love to deploy. Uh, and uh, and uh, I think maybe that doesn't work. Okay, the movie's men. As of now, it's only out in theaters. If you can believe there's still 
acres of material here to explore and spoil. So that's going to go in the plus segment. So uh, tune into that. All right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Well, before we go any further, this is where we insert a set of business alerts. This is our little bulletin board. Uh, Dana, you're you're made out of cork. Uh, I'm full of push pins. You're you're full of push pins. Uh, what's dangling from you today? <laughs> I appreciate your commitment to that metaphor, Steve. Our only item of business this week is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week we're going to have a spoilers heavy Slate Plus segment because one of our conversations this week in the regular show is about the movie Men, the new Alex Garland horror movie thriller, and that movie is very very twist dependent. There's some things that you just can't really analyze without spoiling the um, crazy twist ending, which I'm not even certain that I totally understood. I really want to hash that out with Julia and Steve. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that at the end of our conversation. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. When you sign up, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and lots of other Slate podcasts have those too. And of course, you get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate.com. When you're a Slate Plus member, you will never hit a paywall, and you will also be supporting our work and the work of our many brilliant colleagues. These memberships matter a lot to us at Slate, so please, if you like listening to us, sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus to become a member. Okay, well, the comedy troupe Kids in the Hall started out as a ragtag bunch of punk upstarts doing their outre stick out on Queen Street West in Toronto. This is back in the 80s. And in a way, even after stints on uh, writing for SNL, appearing on HBO, and now Amazon Prime, uh, even with breakout members like Dave Foley finding degrees of big league stardom, that's exactly what they still are. Five irreverent Gen Xers whose mission was and is to, in the wake of Python and SNL and SCTV, take comedy in newer and even less expected directions. The new show is a nakedly, literally and figuratively honest confession about what it's like to try to make comedy fresh as you approach the age of 60. Why don't we listen to a clip Okay, in this sketch, there's been uh, some kind of an apocalyptic event, and most of humanity has been wiped out. Nonetheless, a radio DJ played by Dave Foley continues to broadcast his show, even though he only owns one record to play. All right, let's listen to a clip. Good morning, that was Melanie and Brand New Key, and this is your friendly neighborhood DJ, Mike Motormouth Mulcahy on KROC, The Crocodile, rolling out the rock to whoever's left in whatever's left of the greater metropolitan area. The weather today is mostly lethal, so stay indoors. And by indoors, we mean underground in a secure bunker or an abandoned mine. Well, enough chitter-chatter, let's get at her. This is Motormouth in the morning. Ready or not, here I rock. Well, I got a brand new pair of 
All right, Julia, let me start with you. Uh, I didn't have a, I have to admit, a, a deep history with kids in the hall. I was, I was fun making uh, their better acquaintance for this segment. What was your history and what you, would you make of the reboot? I did encounter this as an anointed product as a teen and like liked it, but wasn't a comedy nerd. Didn't think of myself as like particularly in love with any of this. And yet this is the first remake that I've had like the full nostalgia. Like I was like, oh, this is what people must feel. Like the 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 super 90s surf rock theme song comes on. Possibly the best thing about Kids in the Hall was the music actually yeah. all along, sacrilege possibly. But and I had this feeling of like they made this for me. Like this meant so much to me in my youth and now they're back and and we're all aging and death is near for everyone. And how does one reckon with one's like evolution as a human on this planet if you're lucky enough to continue to rack up decades as they go? And I was like, I didn't even care about this show as a teenager. So I feel like I had a very personal reckoning with the power of nostalgia that possibly didn't have that much to do with the show itself. Um, but... Part of what was appealing about the show, you know, and, and part of what it leans into is its fundamental Canadianness, a fundamental like like an alpha attitude towards its fundamental beta dumb, which is maybe what proud Canadianism is. Um, oh man, the the mail the mail we can get about that. Come at me. But um the the you know, it's interesting to talk about this in the same um show as talking about men, which has leans very hard into uh, scuzzy, outmoded and not particularly nuanced versions of manhood. And like part of what I think was radical and interesting and exciting about Kids in the Hall in the 90s was the the modes of manhood that were on display, the ways in which it was teased and mocked, um, you know, the the playing with gay characters in ways that were perhaps not so common at the time. Um, and yeah, I think, I think the show has a confidence in its own goofiness that is part of what it has always been about. And maybe that sounds like a baseline for any sketch comedy show, like what sketch comedy show is not goofy and confident in its goofiness, but I don't know other shows are like sharper, more pointed or more satirical or more nasty or more canny or more like trying to be relevant in some way. And this show is just like truly out to lunch in a, in a manner that feels freeing and felt, felt dated and, and, and fun. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Dana, what do you think? Yeah, the, the, I, I did not like you. Unlike Julia, have a real relation to the show at the time. I was very aware that it was it was there and that it was an important influence on other comedians. I think I probably knew about it mainly as the previous thing Dave Foley had done before News Radio, which I did watch and oh, did yes. love. Love. Um, but I feel that same sort of um, generational nostalgia and affection for this kind of humor. And going back and watching some of the old segments from the you know original run of Kids in the Hall made me realize that it was more progressive i don't mean necessarily politically progressive but at times that but cutting edge in comedy than it than it had seemed at the time you know i think that probably it seemed at the time like a, a nicer and less edgy show than some other comedians of the 90s um, because it is a pretty apolitical 
format and, you know, is usually more about sort of pursuing group silliness and taking, you know, funny <laughs> social situations as far as they can go. Uh, but for example, the character Buddy Cole, who's this recurring character on the old kids in the hall, and I believe makes some appearances on the new one as well. I haven't seen all the new episodes yet. He's played by Scott Thompson, who was an out gay comedian, not a very common thing to be in the late 80s. And, um, and he's this really interesting character who runs a bar called Buddies, is usually seen in the bar, um, has a very flamboyant, you know, sort of stereotypically gay style, not in, not unlike Stefan, the uh, the Bill Hader character on Saturday Night Live. I mean, a, a very different um, type of stuff that he talks about, but similarly kind of employing these, these gay stereotypes in a way that is not hateful. But the fact that Thompson himself was an out gay man, you know, gives a different feel to that. Anyway, those Buddy Cole segments that at the time probably would have gone over my head, or maybe I would have thought, you know, this is stereotyping or something now seem really radical in their, um, in their willingness to just place that character front and center. And, you know, Buddy Cole has all kinds of offensive ideas that he sits and, and muses about straight to camera. Now that I own a gay bar, I can't stay in the closet anymore. <laughs> I'm as high profile as a city councilor. So that was one thing that struck me. Um, and I mean, in terms of everything old seeming new again, I mean, I would have to say that the present day comedy sketch show that this most reminds me of, though their sensibilities are somewhat different, is I Think You Should Leave, which we've talked about on the show before, which similarly is a group of people, mainly men, with similarly weird senses of humor, just setting up strange premises and then taking them as far as they could go. And I think you should leave also op operates with a kind of minimalism that, that kids in the hall shares. I mean, I'm thinking of the head crusher guy. Are you familiar with this character from the kids in the hall yeah. days, right? Who, who just sort of likes to stand around outside office parks and express his hatred for all humanity by pretending that he's crushing the head of everyone he sees between his pinched fingers. And it is such a childish joke. It's like something that a kid on the school bus would make in seventh grade, right? just crushing everybody they see with their fingers. Hey, Wall Street, don't panic. I mean, I'm only crushing your heads. Crush you. But before the there were memes or an internet to put memes on, the head crusher guy was, was, as I remember, sort of a meme in his day, just a silly little character, sketch character that you could kind of recreate in your own everyday life. So I don't know. I guess I, I, I don't I vibe with the kids in the hall, despite, unlike Julia, not having a, a super strong sense of nostalgia for the original. I watched the documentary that accompanies this um, about kids in the hall. I thought it was really fun and really enlightening. And um, Mike Myers is is the is sort of the A list, you know, SNL uh, and feature film alumni they bring in who's Canadian to say, you know, like they these guys were geniuses. I saw them, you know, says Myers back on Queen Street. The only thing in the world I wanted to be was a member of Kids in the Hall. He like would cameo with them, but they they didn't let him in, whether he was too young or just didn't fit or whatever. And I'm like, Mike Myers made me laugh, right? Like that was the generation of SNL that started to resurge and and was finally reminiscent of what had made the original show great and Myers was a genius and he had that weird like like what planet are some of these characters coming from but Kids in the Hall never made me laugh right and even watching the doc I was like god I'm not laughing any of these supposedly classic skits like I just something about the energy I mean I admire everything about it right I admire that they poached Lorne Michaels comes in 
you know, the the f- fucking devil himself from Faust and poaches two of them. You know, their essence is as a fivedom. He poaches two to be writers on SNL in the mid-80s. SNL sucked in the mid-80s. It was a fucking viper pit to work at from everything I've heard. Thankfully, they didn't fit in. They didn't get totally lost. They were like, this fucking sucks. And they made it their way back up to Canada. They've had this, now, what is it, 30 close 30, 35 year, whatever it is, relationship with Lauren Michaels, who is their Faustian handshake, uh, you know, who really believed in them. He doesn't come off as a villain, but they have a wonderful, their betaness next to his alphaness is a very, very uh, uh, delicious part of the documentary. And he's spoofed in the new show. And here's the here's another piece of whiplash. I loved the new one. The, lo- the new one finally made me laugh hard is just the proof is only in the pudding when it comes to comedy the sketch where they're like chippendale style dancers and these young attractive women conventionally attractive women are finding them finding them sexy for being in their late like sad fucking sacks of human decrepitude in their late 50s it's so funny it's just it's just it's just fucking funny. That's so interesting, Steve. I actually found this less funny. Um, it did not make me laugh very often, but I enjoyed seeing these guys with the confidence of exactly what they have built in their career and seemingly confidence in the things they have not built in their careers, which, you know, have fairly modest scope. Um just like embracing the idea of doing comedy together nearing age 60. Like one of the first sketches in the first episode involves two of the characters stripping down naked to evade some cops who are hunting them for a robbery and just like jumping around fully naked, full frontal, like, (laughs) you know, just, (laughs) just inviting us all to really study, uh, the, their physiques nearing 60. Uh, and you know, there, that sort of speaks to the overall attitude is like, just Mm. take us as we are. And and one aspect I did not like about the remake because of that is that it has these little interstitials of like the kids in the fa- kids in the hall fans that are legendary comics who are more famous and celebrated at least right now in the culture than the kids in the hall guys are um, pretending to be characters who love the kids in the hall and I was like it was protesting too much or something. It's like the whole point of these guys is they don't need you to know how much they're loved or how big they're impact is they just are themselves being themselves enjoying themselves and that felt discordant to me those like but pete davidson likes them too don't worry don't worry even if it seems a little lo-fi and a little canadian like someone you've heard of likes them um it had a <laughs> it had a different energy than the show itself okay well i mean uh, worth checking out um certainly if you're a fan of the original um visit this one but uh, let us know let us know if you're big kids in the hall fans uh what you make of the reboot but also where they fit in in the kind of genealogy of of uh, comedy somewhere between sctv and um and what's come since uh all right moving on this episode is brought to you by fx's the veil starring elizabeth moss fx's the veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, well, Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle is the new book by Jody Rosen, and it is as definitive, deep, dandy, and hard to categorize as the man himself. At once, a thorough history, a memoir, prose poem, and uh, something of an expose. We'll talk about that, definitely. The book shows us a machine and a man made of many parts. Jody Rosen, hi, buddy, and huge... I want to tell you huge congrats as Sisyphus with the rock only a third of the way up the hill. I am just uh, really, really pleased that you uh, brought this book, which I've been waiting to read forever to completion. It is a wonderful, wonderful achievement. It is a genuinely great book. Uh, Congrats. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. And I I can't wait to read yours. No pressure, but (laughs) Uh, all right. Well, moving on very quickly from that uh, moment, what, the first thing that really amazed me about the book is that the bicycle seems so elemental, right? And yet it is so incredibly very new. It was invented uh, relatively, like really, really recently. It just, it's, it turns out that inventing the bicycle is fundamentally different from inventing the wheel. Talk a little bit about that and also what brought you to the subject. You yourself are an avid biker. Let's, uh, let's get there too. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, no, I mean, what you say about, about the bicycle's kind of belated invention is, is very true and is also one of the kind of, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the great curiosities of the bicycle because the technology that is necessary to build a bicycle has been available since the middle, since the early Middle Ages. And yet it took centuries for somehow fate to get his act together and, and, and give us the bicycle. So when the bicycle, when the first kind of proto-bicycle arrives in, in 1817, which is not a bicycle with pedals, it's, a, it's like a push bike. It's a bike that's propelled by um, essentially straddling the thing and running. That, that first bike, which, was, uh, which arrived in, in the city of Mannheim in what was then the, the German Federation, the Duchy of Baden, um, it showed up um, at the same time, or actually 15 years after, like a decade and a half after the invention of the steam locomotive. Um, by the time um, the bicycle was kind of perfected, there was a, there was a long history of um, a series of trials and errors and to, to produce the, the bike that we know today, which has two equal-sized wheels and, you know, uh, a chain drive that pulls the rear wheel forward and, you know, the classic bicycle form, uh, which was at that time in the late 19th century called the safety bike. The safety bike arrives in 1885, and that's the same year that Carl Benz is, is, has, produces his first motor wagon. So, you know, we have, like, we have a, like a locomotive train is around before the bike, and by the time the bike gets perfected, the automotive age is, is upon us, is stirring. So it should have been, it should have been around earlier. And, and for that reason, I th- there's, there's a lot of kind of bogus, um, apocryphal creation myths that have circulated around the bike for d- decades. People kind of projecting it, the bike back into history and saying, oh, there must have been an ancient bike that, you know, the Egyptians were mm-hmm. tooling around on in the shadow of the pyramids. <laughs> 
Jody, to, to, to pivot from the history of the bicycle to the mystery of the bicycle, and this is the subtitle of your book, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle, which I love, I wanted you to talk about how you, you see this book as a nonfiction project, because it is an unusual kind of project and is certainly not an exhaustive history of that piece of technology that you just described the initial design of. I mean, you do definitely kick off with some history, but then what in the subtitle is called The Mystery of the Bicycle, sort of a more reflective, essayistic, and... Um, I don't know, I would say a, a, a personal history of the bicycle is also woven into that. And that also leads to some kind of formal innovations in the book, like a chapter that consists almost entirely, or I think maybe entirely of clippings from newspapers from turn of the 20th century, you know, newspaper columnists who were scandalized by women on bikes. That's one whole chapter. There's another chapter that's almost in um, sort of dialogue form between this this couple that you interview who met on a, on a long distance bike ride. Can you talk a little bit about nonfiction and genre and sort of what genre you intended this book to be? The main thing I was trying to do when I, when I finally sat down to write this thing after lots of, lots of research and reporting was avoid the pitfalls of potted history. Like I'm kind of a hack historian, but I'm, I like, I think I'm, uh, I'm better at, at, journalism or doing reportage. Plus, it was fun. I wanted to go out and get into the bicycle world and tell those stories. So I have, a, you know, a bunch of chapters that are really just grounded in, in travel log and reporting. And then I just wanted to, you know, let, uh, unleash my, my deep thoughts, man, my, my musings about the meaning of the bicycle, because that's something that I actually think about a lot when I ride around on bikes and always have, even before I was ever under contract for a bike <laughs> book. I was you know, out on my bike and thinking to myself, you know, why is this, why does this feel so good? This, this is, is it, you know, how, how weird is it that I'm both the passenger on this bicycle and I'm the engine of the bicycle? So those, those, as it were, mysteries have kind of obsessed me for, for years. And uh, so I, I, I wanted, I wanted to, you know, get into that stuff in the book. The one other thing I'll say is that, you know, there's a, uh, I, I, I kind of, there's a, there's a, there's a very sentimental romantic aspect to writing about the bicycle in general. There's now a kind of um, revisionist scholarly literature, which is taking a more hard nosed, less hagiographic look at the bike. Um, and I'm down with, with that revisionist stuff. So I wanted to, for instance, debunk a lot of the sentimental myths that surround bikes um, and redress the the very American-centric and Eurocentric imbalance in the literature because the vast, vast majority of the bikes are in the world and the and cyclists in the world are in the global south. But if you read most books written about bikes, the only thing you know is that a bunch of white people ride around on them, you know, in nice bike lanes in cities <laughs> of the West and, you know, that you, you read a lot about Copenhagen and, and Amsterdam, but you don't read about, you know, Dhaka and Delhi and Shanghai, which is where there are just so many bicycles and, and such fascinating cycling cultures. I wanted to ask you, Jody, a little bit, and, and maybe that teases an answer to this question, but a little bit about the genesis of this project and what, you know, what strikes me in, in your description here is that the bike seems both over and under, over familiar and under considered. And what made you feel like there needed to be this consideration or, or, or how are you trying to broaden or expand our understanding with the book? It was really a personal impulse as opposed to some like, you know, mission I was on. I, I really just wanted to reckon with my, with my own um, questions about bicycles because like I, I, there, 
I try, as Steve said in his intro, to be you know not so sentimental in this um, book and try and be try and take a kind of skeptical look at the bicycle and and write you know some some kind of grown up history as a bi- of the bike as opposed to you know a lot of the literature which is like the bicycle is the redemptive little green machine that's going to save the world and it's so cute and twee that's really like a strain in bicycle culture and in bicycle activist culture and in the and in in a lot of the literature of the bicycle but um you know i love bikes like out of all proportion <laughs> like i'm like i'm crazy about about riding around on my bike and i love looking at bikes and I, uh, I'm, you know, mesmerized, <laughs> I'm, mesmer- I'm mesmerized by, by the bikes I see in the street. So it's just something, it's just this topic that has obsessed me for many, many years. Um, and I spent many years just kind of like zoning out, thinking about bikes. And I was like, wait a sec, I write for a living. Why am I spending my time writing about things other than bicycles? And it seemed to me that there was a, there was a place, a kind of like hole in the, um, in the Bicycle Library, a place for this kind of a book, which is kind of a nonfiction book that that crosses genres a little bit and that um, that is is both history and maybe something more like historical essay. So I gave it a shot. I mean, it just you did a beautiful job, right? I mean, the essence of criticism is preserving your love in the face of your enlightened skepticism and bringing your enlightened skepticism to bear on your love, right? And keeping those things in a kind of bicycle-like forward propulsive equilibrium, if you'll allow me to be overstretched and poetic about it. But the book really, I think, inspires that response. It's almost, it reminded me of so many different kinds of books, but I know you're a fan of this certain kind of history writing, like uh, Carlo Ginsburg and like you know, I would assume City of Courts by by Mike Davis, the in its way definitive book about L.A. It's both. It's this amazing thing to come at something kind of, you know, sort of both with enormous synthetic and comprehensive powers and a highly uh, uh, idiosyncratic individual point of view. Uh, I uh, and I just, I just, you get at something so beautiful about the bicycle, right? Which is that. It's very much like learning to walk or talk in one sense, but it happens later. So it's elemental, but we remember it. Almost everyone learns how to ride a bike, and almost everyone who's learned how to ride a bike remembers this primal moment uh, of with a parent being unable, presumably with a parent, not always, but but most often I would think with a parent being unable to do it, it seeming somewhat mysterious and impossible to master. And then all of a sudden, all of its various elements fuse the physics of the world the machine and yourself together and you're going forward on your own and and you vividly remember it which you can't for walking talking eating breathing all these other things um and and yet there's also that phrase it's like riding a bicycle which you point to which is it then becomes as elemental as those it's like the paradigmatic thing that you just know how to do and never forget um it just felt as though the book was written in the same spirit as riding a bicycle, both this unconscious and conscious thing, both euphoric, but also meticulous. No, 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 no. I'll stop. I mean, you know, what you say about that, um, that kind of primal experience of learning to ride a bike and, and, and that moment, that exhilarating moment of, you know, tasting liberation and autonomy that you experience as a kid when suddenly you're you're like whooshing off on two wheels the adult who's been pushing you along isn't back there anymore and suddenly you magically you know how to ride a bike like the skill is 
assimilated instantaneously and nothing's going to shake it loose unless god forbid you have some you know in horrible brain trauma you know that's that is that's the that's the crazy thing about the way um the way the brain works and how a skill like bicycle riding you know it just kind of kind of gets locked in there um but you know that that's that feeling of freedom through history has been extended into the political realm because the bicycle, you know, for, for all my trying to be a, a debunker and, and not be sentimental about the bike and uh, describe, for instance, ways in which the bicycle has, has been, um, uh, you know, a, um, a tool of empire and um, has extracted uh, an environmental toll in its own right. Um, the bicycle really has been a tool of protest and resistance um, through through the decades, and I think that now we're seeing like the reemergence of of the the bicycle as a as a vehicle of protest. We saw it in the in the Black Lives Matter uprising of 2020. Um, there's a lot of people taking to streets across the world in great numbers um, on bicycles, and we're we're experiencing like in you know in pure like you know if if you look at the stats, this is like the biggest bicycle boom and the most globalized bicycle boom of all 200 years into the life of this weird, you know, pokey 19th century machine. So that's actually, I think, you know, another, possibly even the biggest reason I wanted to write this thing is because, like, we're in a bike moment. And, you know, what the, 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 the future of cities arguably depends <laughs> upon um, uh, things like bikes are finding more space and f- for bikes in cities and, you know, getting cars the hell out of, of cities. Um, and to, to some extent, although this can be uh, uh, overstated, you know, the future of the planet depends on us finding a more sustainable, um, saner, healthier, happier way to live. And, and the bicycle really can be a big, a big part of that. So, so yeah, that's, a, that's, that's another reason I wrote, wrote the, the book because, yeah. um, because, you know, this is, we're, we're, it, you know, 2022 is a, is, is a, is a real, is a real bike moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, here, and uh, may this book be a big part of that going forward. Um, Jody, uh, I can't quit you. Can you stick around and endorse? We don't do that much anymore, but but we'll make time for you. Can you uh, can you stick around here? I would love to. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, the book is Two Wheels Good: The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. It's out today from Crown Books. Please pick it up. It is a, a tremendously worthwhile uh, document. Uh, Jody Rosen is going to stick around and endorse. Thanks for sticking around, Jody. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Jody. Thank you for sticking around. What do you got? Yeah, uh, I, I kind of strong armed you, Stephen, to letting me stick around because I, I have I feel so evangelical about this endorsement that I had to just like get it out in the world on some platform. So I'm co-opting your <laughs> your platform, and this might feel like a log roll because nominally, in some I'm, I'm a New York Times writer. Like that's you know I have a I have a 
a, f a regular freelance contract job for the New York Times Magazine. But this is not a log roll because I'm endorsing the work of a writer who's a New York Times critic. I never met this person, never spoken to this person, but I'm so in love with his work that I had to say something about this. Do you guys know who Jason Farrago is, the art critic Jason Farrago? I was going to say that's who you were going to say. I he is so effing good. I agree. Every single time he steps to the plate. I mean, he, he is just a tremendously good uh, uh, critic, art critic, uh, art historian, public art historian. He's, he's marvelous. Right. And, and in particular, he has kind of pioneered this series in the Times that's called Close Read, which Julia will be interested in this, or maybe she has thoughts about this. This is just one of the It's so best good. It's so good. I've been reading them. Exactly. Most incredible uses of the internet in journalism that I've ever seen to kind of do exegesis, like to, to explicate and do close reads, <laughs> as it were, you know, close analysis of works of art. So in the case of Jason Farrago's pieces, um, he writes very beautifully in these very short little sentences that, and you kind of scroll through and you get a, a couple sentences per scroll. And what you're doing is looking at a work of art and the interface works such that you, you, with each scroll, you, you might like zoom in on a particular detail of the painting as he's talking about that or zoom out to take in the whole. And these, these pieces step through art history, the history of ideas, you know, history writ large, and just perform like ju just the best kind of, yeah, close, close criticism, you know, like l deep, deep criticism. So I want to recommend a couple of pieces in particular to people who just want to get started with Jason Farrago. He, there's a piece he did um, about uh, a painting by Bert Morisot, who's, uh, a, I guess, a, was a Maybe she was American, even though she has a French-sounding name. But in any case, she was a, she was a, a lesser-known impressionist master. Um, he did a close reading of uh, of a Jasper Johns painting, which is just like uh, like uh, real, really like it's a tearjerker of a piece. Um, he um, he did a close read of a painting called Shah Jahan on a Terrace, which is an and in one of those wonderful Indian miniatures, I think it's a, a 17th century painting. So yeah, just just Google around, get to the Times website, and check out Jason Farrago's close read pieces. They're all masterful. Yeah, I uh, endorsed one, the uh, Musée de the Auden poem, uh, Musée de Beaux Arts. It's just an amazing, amazing uh, feature. I agree, Dana. What do you have? Uh, okay, maybe this is this will be a, a, a Jody pleaser of, of an endorsement because it has to do with uh, the invention of a technology, as your book on the bike does, and it is also about I, what I know is one of your favorite substances in the world, coffee. <laughs> so I'm going to endorse a 10-year-old article from Smithsonian Magazine, um, but since it's about the old days, I guess it doesn't matter that it's an old article. It's about the invention of espresso, which happened actually right around the same time that I guess the bike was enjoying its, its boom in the, sort of the 1890s to the turn of the 20th century. And um, this article specifically focuses on these two characters, these two Italian inventors, Luigi Bizzera and Desiderio Pavoni, which the article calls the Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs of espresso. <laughs> so this was sort 
sort of like the tech guy and, you know, the guy who knew how to promote the machine. And it just talks about the 1906 World's Fair in Milan when they introduced the fastest coffee making machine that had ever existed. Of course, espresso comes from the Italian word for quickly. And um, and the espresso machine was a wonder at the time because it could very quickly produce this beverage that, you know, Europe had been addicted to at that point for a couple centuries. And um, it's, it's just a really fun sort of history of technology and, and snapshot of that moment. There's also some great illustrations of the, the World's Fair in 1906 in Milan and some patent drawings of the first espresso machine. Anyway, if you're a coffee addict and you're into history, I think you would have fun with this article. We'll put a link on the show page. It's called The Long History of the Espresso Machine. Oh, man. Keep the assembly line rolling here. We got we got bikes, coffee, uh, close reading. This is like, I mean, it's like I'm like a, uh, a puppy on its back getting its tummy scratched. Uh, Julia, <laughs> what, what do you got? All right. Well, I, I'm going to bait Jody, even though we've got to we've got to close this this segment out. But um, Jody tweeted like six weeks ago, I think, that he was obsessed with the Boston restaurant Tate. And I've been wanting to talk to him about it for all the time since because I, too, am obsessed with the Boston restaurant Tate. This is like an independent kind of Israeli inflected like breakfast, lunch, and pastry place that is delicious in all three of those categories um, and then has been kind of massively expanded within Boston. It turns out that some of it was acquired by the CEO or owner of Panera, and then when he sold Panera, he kept Tate. And so Tate, is, there's now like 12 or 13 in Boston, and they're expanding to D.C., and it's I, I ate there nonstop last summer, um, and... I love Boston. I grew up in Boston. I don't think of Boston as like a major hub of food innovation. Come at me, Boston people, whatever, you know, Dunkin' Donuts accepted. Um, But wow, if you're in Boston, you got to go to Tate and Jody just have to say, I see you. I see your Tate fandom. Um, Like what deliciosity. And if any listener out there knows how you pronounce it, if Tate, is that actually how you pronounce the name of this restaurant? Not sure, but... Unclear. That's one of the things that's so unlikely about it. Wonderful Israeli food chain from Boston. Tat? Can't be called tat. Doesn't seem like a tat. Anyway, very good, though. Uh, All right. So, um, uh, uh, Jody, you're probably with me on this. There's a very special poignancy to being the second best or maybe even third best songwriter in a band. Of course, the archetypal case is George Harrison, who we got all got a refresher on in the Beatles documentary. He can scarcely get the attention of Lennon and McCartney. He's playing songs that go on to become classic <laughs> songs for them, auditioning for the, them for Lennon and McCartney, the greatest songwriting duo who ever lived. And all, and they're like, yeah, yeah, now back to business. And then, I mean, Lennon and McCartney could barely keep their eyes off of one another to see how the other is reacting to the latest thing that they're doing, whether it be Jape or musical scrap or whatever. And, and Harrison is just invisible. It's just incredibly sad. It happens in band after band after band. There is a star, right? And the star comes in and he He's got he's just got the presence, the charisma, the chops, the voice, and the songs, the biggest currency, right? The songs. And um uh, there was an example of this that I don't think is especially well known. The basement, the bass player for the replacements 
was Tommy Stinson with added poignancy. He became a member of the band when he was in his very early teens and toured a lot of the country, if not parts of the world, when he was like 15 with guys guys two, three, four years older than he was. It was because he was the younger brother of the guitarist who was a major substance abuser, uh, his older brother, Bob. And so he kind of lived, he lived formative years on the road playing bass, but he's actually, I think he's a really underrated uh, a front guy and singer and songwriter. He had a, a band that I adored called Bash and Pop after the replacements. So what I'm endorsing is this, I found this deep cut YouTube video of while the replacements were still going, the band, it feels like the band has exited the stage. It does not sound like the regular drummer on the drums, but basically Paul Westerberg just seeds the stage completely, I think indifferently. I don't even think he hands it to Tommy, little Tommy. And Tommy, I guess with a guitar, gets up and plays a song that becomes years later the kind of one of the sort of would-be hits from the Bash and Pop record. It's called Friday Night is Killing Me. It's an early version of the song. It doesn't really sound like the one on the record. And just the, it's like from 91, we'll post the link to it, the utter poignancy, the heartbreaking, like there was already this deep homesick quality to the, what the replacements did, what Westerberg did. And it's just tripled, uh, quadrupled, you know, to have little Tommy Stinson, the perennial younger brother, the second best songwriter in the band. And he's, I think he's just an amazing rock and roller. He's got a great upper register uh, rock and roll voice. His songwriting on that first Bash and Pop record is kind of like the old Faces, the Faces uh, classic records. It just has that jump and melody to it. Uh, it's just primal stuff. It's really good. Jody, you won't like it at all. But I'll... I'll send you the link and you can tell me why I'm <laughs> <No>. wrong. <laughs> I will definitely. I'm I'm a huge uh, replacement fan. What are you talking about, baby? Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, a pleasant surprise. Jody, it was so cool to have you on the show. People <laughs> must buy your book, Table Pounded. It is so Wait, good. I just have to flag. That's like the most Steve and Jody moment ever. You invite Jody on. You praise his book lavishly. And then at the end, you shade him by being like, you're a music <laughs> critic who doesn't think the replacements are good. Come on. <laughs> I want to take issue with this ad, uh, 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 I guess, adverb lavishly. I praised it proportional to judiciously. Its okay. Yes. Thank you. Judiciously. Yeah. Actually, I think I think Steve praised it judiciously too. That was, that was there's nothing lavish about it. Jody, love you, man. Thanks for coming on the show. It's always really fun. Thank you so much. Dana, Julia, really good show. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Uh, you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the wonderful composer Nick Bertel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For Jody, Dana, and Julia, I am Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will talk to you soon. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.